My fellow Americans. My fellow Americans. My fellow Americans. America isn't easy. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. We reached for the stars, acted like men. We aspired to intelligence. We didn't, oh, we didn't scare so easy. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. People say if you don't love America, then get the hell out. Well, I love America. Where are we headed? Who are we? What legacy will we leave behind? On Only in America, we examine our current State of the Union in an effort to uncover our patriotic common ground. Regardless of race, gender, party, or affiliation, we're all united as Americans, one nation under God, indivisible. Welcome to Only in America. And now, here's your host, Robert Caltabiano. Hello, hello, and I do love America. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you're going, what you're doing. I'm here today in the studios with my good friend Bill Wallace and, of course, always our producer extraordinaire, Zach, and my right-hand person, the one who keeps us all on time and makes sure that I'm doing what I'm doing. Kristen, how is everybody <laughs> doing today? We're doing excellent. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, let's open it up because I always love to do this with a quote. You know, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> Winston Churchill. Churchill, huh? Interesting, yes. Isn't it? What have we tried today? So, you know, I think, uh, Bill, there's a couple of things that we want to talk about today. Did you want to ask me some questions? Actually, I do. In our last show, we talked about uh, your service, your service uh, as a Secret Service agent, your service as a retiring as the special agent in charge of the Dallas Division, uh, the fact that you were on seven presidential details. So I'd like to rip back the curtain. Absolutely. I'd wow. like to find it, out. This is Kristen's fault now. now <laughs> okay, but literally, rip back. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this will not be a classified show, but what we hope to do is to give you a peek behind the curtain of, of what government service really is in the arena of protection, the arena of secret service. So uh, opening, where did your inspiration, when did you make the decision that you were going to do this? Because this is a lifestyle. This isn't just a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In high school. Really? Yeah. There's an article that was written in my local newspaper about me, and um, it said that you know, uh, Rob Caltabiano, um, future government employee, and it said either in the Secret Service or the FBI at that time. So one of the things is I think you have to have a goal, and when you have that goal, either you, you stick with it. The, when you stick with your goal, there's nothing that you can't achieve. And I had that in my mind back then, um, that I wanted to be really near the presidents. See, I love history. Now, who was in office when you were in high school? Because did that have a, you know an Reagan. impact on, on President Reagan wanting to be involved this with was, the presidency? Yeah, 1981, mm -hmm. and um, you know he had just got elected. And uh, I, I loved all the presents. My, my best memories of Disney World, until this day, when I go down there, I love Disney World. It's not a plug for Disney, but I'm going to plug it. I love it. It's purely American. <laughs> and is the Hall of Presidents. Hmm. And if you ask my mom, she would tell you, as a little kid, I was there the opening, the first year. The, actually, the, the, th the three months after it opened, in 1972, we were there. And I just was mesmerized by that. And so what I did was a kid from a small town in New York, I got pretty close to the presidents. So 
a president actually inspired you or a president yeah. inspired you to do this. Yes. So tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about your journey to this. Well, you know, it's changed a lot, I think, for the young people coming into government service. But when I started years ago, you had to have more experience. You had to have some type of work experience. And you had to take a test. You still do for the Secret Service. But back then, it was called the Treasury Enforcement Exam. And let me tell you, it was not easy. Hmm. It was like taking the LSATs. You actually had to study for this. And you had to pass it with a 70. Well, I got a 70.5. <laughs> uh, my math is not that good, and you had to have a lot of math on it at that point. And so I was happy I just passed it. The problem was is that back in the 80s, they weren't hiring that much. It was President Reagan got in. There was a freeze on government hiring. So I sat around with my application for, for a couple of years until somebody introduced me to somebody in the Secret Service for an interview. So how did you keep your uh, enthusiasm up for those two years? That's a long time. Yeah, how did you avoid? Not why didn't you go someplace else? Yeah, why didn't because you just Because when start you know what career? you want to do at the time, either you stick with it or you don't. And when you don't, that's when failure comes in. And so I, at the end of the day, I just knew that this is what I wanted to do, and I will do what is needed to get there. And it took me a few years. I was persistent in it. I went out and did some other work. I was working in a government uh, in, in New York City. For, it's called the Department of Investigation. We dealt with organized crime and corruption. I got my background in that, and that led me to the Secret Service. So this gentleman, this agent you met that somewhat shepherded you, did he become your mentor? Did this? How, well, tell me about that relationship as you moved into this. Uh, I've had so many mentors in my life. First of all, you know, I start off with God as my number one mentor, and then my grandparents and my parents. Um, you know, everybody that you meet can be a mentor. But when I really started working in the city of New York, I had some great outstanding detectives. Uh, when you talk about these men, um, one guy, his name, I'll just put his first name out there, is, is Tony. Uh, he was a first-grade detective in New York City, and he said, look, kid, you know what you know when you could get a criminal to come in to the office and turn himself in all on the phone. You never have to go out there and get them. And I learned from him, and I did the same thing. He taught me how to get these people, how to how to get them to volunteer to come in to surrender to, unfortunately for them, get arrested. Sounds like a challenge. It sounds like we need to keep our mouths shut. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both, I guess. I want to go back to the test. So what kind of, do you remember any kind of questions that yeah, were was, on the test? Well, that you I don't know take? the questions, but I could tell you it was hard. They had a section there on memory, mm-hmm. and now it's changed a little bit. But when I took the test... It was still from the 1960s, I believe it was. And so the pictures, imagine that you had a 1960s car. So they had a, I remember this, there was a city block, a picture of these, uh, like say, apartment buildings. And there were some old cars on it. And you had a, you couldn't, you had three minutes to look at this picture. You couldn't write anything down. And then you had to answer several questions. So Mm -hmm. one of them could have been on the 13th floor, three windows over. There was something in the window. Was it a flower pot? Was it a person? Was it a curtain? And you had to have to answer that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that really tested your memory back then. Today, I probably couldn't do it, let alone, you know, the writing and then the arithmetic on it. So memory and recall. What, what are some other important categories that are important to be a Secret Service agent? I think it goes back into what's important today on, on any aspect of, of work is number one is, is um, communications. Mm-hmm. You know, can you write? Now, today, everybody, you know, you have uh, Word, you have, you know, spell check that's right on the computer. Years ago, we didn't, and we had typewriters, and 
there was nothing to check your spelling. You had a dictionary. Um, so I, I think you take that. Um, math, I'm going to tell everybody out there, you may love math. I don't love math. Math doesn't love me. <laughs> but it's, you know, the recall of communications. If you can't communicate well, and I'm not saying you have to be in a really a Ronald Reagan in communications, Bill, but if you cannot speak well to somebody and put your hand out there and shake it, how are you going to make it in this world? So you're talking about sharing the vision, sharing the passion of that vision yeah. as we go through this, an observation. Well, I want to know more about the, not just the test, but the training, the selection process, what you had to go through to get there. And maybe this would be the next segment. Well, let's wait and see. All right. From sea to shining sea, only in America continues right after this. Well, I tried to make it Sunday, but I got so damn depressed that I set my sights on Monday. A shining city on a hill. You're listening to Only in America on RNCL. All right, it's that hill. It is shining, and I love it. We live it, we breathe it, and we start out this way. Einstein said, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used, we used when we created them. The same thinking we used when we created them. Yep. All right, that brings me to a question. Yeah. What thinking... When we talked about in the last segment, got you to the Secret Service. Your dream, your goal, you never deterred from that. You kept focused. Once you were actually there, love to see behind the curtain, the training, how they selected, how, how you stayed there, what you had to do. Tell us a little bit about the role of becoming, not as an agent, of becoming a secret service agent. Right, because we see things in the movies and, and we get this idea, you know, this glorified picture of Clint the, Eastwood. The, <laughs> this glamorous, uh, you know, secret agent life and, and what that must mean. So so what's the reality behind it? And is there any truth? I mean, is it all secret? I think they even wrote a song about you, Secret Agent Man. Well, yeah, <laughs> I heard about that. It, you know, it, I think on anything, there there's some type of, hype when when it goes to that you know we've you know you have the sunglasses you have the earpiece in your ears and um you know people i've had dozens of people always ask me what are you listening to and you know i tell them i'm listening to the radio uh type of deal but you know you have to in order to do something you must be something first and in my view the secret service they're very well trained but you also have that little air of secrecy, like you want to call it, and you act the role that you want to be. So, you know, if you want to be that big, tough person, there's a way of acting it not to be tough, but to get people on your side. It's better to be with somebody in that way than to, than to fight with them. And I think a lot of the, the training goes behind it is that in my life, uh, I went a little above and beyond into how to understand people. W you know, when you're out there every day and, you know, you're looking at crowds, whether, you know, they're going to harm the president. Now, 
almost 30 years ago when I started is a lot different than today. We didn't have drones. You know, you, you didn't have the Internet. You didn't have the Islamic terrorism that we have today, you know, roadside bombings. You know, we were still looking at those crazy people maybe that want to do harm to the president. And I think it really started to change uh, when Timothy McVeigh uh, killed all those people. Some of them were friends of mine up in Oklahoma City. And so the role of the modern-day Secret Service, actually with that and also when President Reagan was shot at, um, changed again. So, so what do you feel the most important singular skill, and then maybe the top two or three skills, that it takes to become and stay a Secret Service agent? Persistence and using your intuition. If you're not persistent, and I think this is for anything, in what you have to do that day, you know, there are times where you can get on an airplane, and I've done it, and you're flying halfway around the world, and it's not very comfortable the way that we fly, and you have to get into another country, and you're hitting the ground running. And it's unli- un- uh, just like anybody else in business, but the difference is here is that you're representing the United States of America. So you've got to be persistent. You've got to have that extra mm to get up and go. And then using your intuition. Uh, most people don't use your intuition. And what I say with that is, is that if it doesn't look right, it doesn't smell right, then it's probably not right. And a lot of people will just discard that, whether it's in a business sense or in the security world, and they'll still go do what they're doing, and that can hurt you. So at what point, with this intuition, at what point do you take evasive action? Do you take protective steps? Where is that line? The line starts in your mind first. You always have to know what is your reaction going to be. It's like if you're up at plate uh, in the baseball, you're up at home plate and you're getting ready to hit and you're anticipating a curveball, but the pitcher throws you a fastball. you still got to be able to swing that bat. And so with the Secret Service, they got to be right 100% of the time. See, the bad people only have to be right 1%. Mm. And it's that 1% that's going to change the course of our country or the world. Robert, in the last segment, you mentioned an aptitude test that you had to take that kind of measured, you know, some of these things like the power of communication that you have. Uh, but what was the actual onboarding process when you got hired? Did you have to go through a, a certain, you know, number of weeks of, yeah. of training? Was it hand-to-hand combat? Kind of what, what types of skills did they need you to have before you were officially hired as an agent? Well, you go through your, your interviews, and it was a uh, several interview process. You have to go through a polygraph exam, and it's changed since I started, but, uh, you know, they ask you some really interesting questions, you know, and the pass and fail rate, especially today, what we're seeing is a lot of people cannot pass the polygraph, mm-hmm. and if you can't pass the polygraph, you're done with. Um, and then an extensive background exam, uh, you know, and it could take anywhere six months to a year. When I started, it was normally eight months to a year, and I was lucky it took me about six months uh, when I got the job offer to start uh, in the Secret Service. Is there any uh, set of skills in particular that are required? Did you have to take any sort of special training courses uh, to be prepared? Not before, but what they looked at is did you have, first of all, work experience. didn't have to be exactly in, in law enforcement or in the military, but they wanted to see a background. Number one, did you have a job? You're not going to come right out of college and go right into the Secret Service. It's mm-hmm. happened, but most of the time it doesn't. They want to see, can you deal with people? Have you worked? Do you have that understanding? Because they're going to train you I- as best as they can, but there's no such thing as just training you and that's it. 
the training starts when you start on the job. And I think that's like anything. You can, you know, be a scholar at MIT, and until you actually apply what you've learned, you haven't really learned anything. Well, to do this for almost 30 years, almost three decades, you have to love it. It has to be a lifestyle. What, what, do, you, what do you love? What did you love most about this job? People. The American people, you know, I've been to, I couldn't tell you how many cities and states and, and countries, but the American people where you see all kinds of faces, shapes, sizes, ages, colors, and it all comes together. And, you know, you just sit back and say, man, this country is really great. And, you know, when you see all the stuff that's going on right now, it just brings me back to the greatness of what we are, you know little children holding the American flags or being excited to see whomever the president is. And you have something to do with it. You're part of it. Or somebody walks up to you and says, can I take a picture with you? And you're like, that's cool. That's, you know what, thank you very much because it's really, I would like to take a picture with you. And I think it's the people. Oh, that's wonderful. So along that same line, if you could change one thing about that 30 years, which perhaps what you like the least or felt feels needs to be changed the most, what would that be? I wouldn't change, but what I would have done is asked more questions, especially uh, being around the presidents. And I did ask a lot. So how many presidents' details did you serve on? Well, uh, from President Ford, who was a former president, and Carter, uh, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and then uh, before he was president, Trump a little bit. That's where I first met you. Yeah. You were with president-to-be Trump. Yeah. Wow. So I'm feeling another segment coming here of uh, of the presidents and what you learn from uh-oh. them. Uh-oh, Bill's oh. feeling it, Kristen. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to get into right I'm here. I'm feeling it. But only in America we're going to find out as he feels his way through the next steps in the Secret Service. Finding our patriotic silver lining. More of Only in America, still to come. Chewing on a piece of grass, walking down the road. I'm Bill Wallace, and I had the honor of founding Success North Dallas almost three decades ago. We've had the best of the best at our lectern, literally from all over the world. And what a lot of people don't realize is we've never paid a speaker or their expenses. Our speakers come because of the people in the room. Speaking of speakers, the third Wednesday of May, we will have a gentleman named Jeff Hazlett. Jeff is also known as the Celebrity Apprentice, Chief Celebrity Marketing Officer. He offices on Park Avenue, lives in South Dakota, has several companies, and is noted and is known as one of the top speakers in the world. And then later in May, we will be bringing C-Suite with Jeff Hazlett back to Dallas some of the top CEOs and C-suite executives from around the U.S., where we will be meeting at the Tower Club the evening of the 22nd and all day the 23rd. For more information, please go to successnorthdallas.com. By the people, for the people. Welcome back to Only in America on the Real News Communications Network. All right, we're back again, and Bill has this feeling, and so, all right, laid on me. What's this feeling about now? All right, you and I have had many conversations over the course of the last year about presidents and the type of people, the feelings you have for them. 
You have had the opportunity to serve on the details of seven either current or past presidents. And the access, the access that you have, the opportunity to interact with them, please talk to us about that because I found it fascinating. Well, you know, some you have more access than others, especially when they're out of office. And I had the, the, the pleasure and the privilege of being with a lot of them, obviously, since they were out of office from President Ford up. And um, it's those solitude times, the solitary times that you have with them. And I did, at least, because I'm a student of history, and I had no problem asking questions. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, we used to be frowned upon in the Secret Service because you're not supposed to really get too familiar with them in those ways or because uh, you're there to protect them. Um, but one was, you know, President Reagan on his 80th birthday, He's been out of office about a year and a half or so. Uh, was up in New York. I was a young agent, and there he is. And we decided through his staff uh, to have a birthday party. And so they arranged it. We had about an hour up in the Carlisle Hotel. And uh, I went to a place called Junior's. It's a famous cheesecake place in Brooklyn and bought this big cheesecake. Mm-hmm. And so it was just myself and two other people. And we went up to the to his room, his suite, and the president was waiting for us. And there he was, you know, larger than life. And I walk up to him and, you know, everybody wanted me to do his voice. I used to do President Reagan's voice. I can only imagine. (laughs) And I couldn't do it. And so I'm standing there and I said, here, Mr. President, happy birthday. This is for you from us, for you and Nancy. And then I said, oh, my God, I just called the first lady by her first name. (laughs) And he just stood there. He smiled about it. And for about an hour and change, he held court just telling us stories. But the access, here's something I learned very much with him is when he told it, you know, the the animation behind it. You know, he was a radio broadcaster. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there was something that uh, I asked him because we were talking about movie days. And I said, in 1979, Mr. President, you wrote an article in Reader's Digest about John Wayne. And he dropped, like his jaw dropped, and he looked at me, I'll never forget it, with his eyes, and he said, how do you know this? I said, well, because I read it, and one of the gifts from my grandmother is a Reader's Digest uh, hmm. every month. Now, it's not there anymore. People, there's, you know, you're saying, what is Reader's Digest? Um, But here was the President of the United States that got enamored by a young guy saying that he read an article when he was former governor. And so it's that that type of, you know, just the cool stuff that I pass on to my children that uh, forever I'll take to my grave. So as a protector of the president to a conversation, to a friendship, did you feel friendships really occurred in in this, this relationship area? of your job. Well, to piggyback off of that, you make a unique point about access. Was access one of the reasons that the job appealed to you? Because you would have, you know, personal contact with the president, someone who most people, you know, are lucky to see a a mile away and get to wave at. (laughs) Well, I didn't really think about that. Now, don't... You know, people may think that, you know, we have this great access. You know, when the current president, you see President Trump, um, he may know s- some of the fellows' names uh, or gals' names on his detail, but most of the time when you're president, you know, they just get familiar with, with faces. And so when you're current sitting there, the access is more, much more limited. And the reason why is because you've got a job. You're not there to, to talk to them about, you know, world events. It's mm-hmm. not our place for that. Um, but I think the longer you 
become a Secret Service agent, you know, and uh, the assignments that you have, and it depends on your position, um, you'll have some more access to ask some questions, and that's what I did. So tell us a little bit about working at the White House, in the White House, in this, the seat of government. Well, you know, I was in and out of there. Uh, I was very lucky in many, many ways is that a lot of my career was outside of Washington, and I loved it that way because uh, whether you think it's a swamp or not. Um, but, you know, we talked about this before, I think, walking into that, that miraculous place and the history behind it. For me, you know, you, you look around and like, oh, my gosh, this is where Adams sat and Jefferson sat and Lincoln and, um, you know, the greatness behind it. And if these walls could talk, uh-huh. what would they be saying? And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, when you see the Oval Office, now the Oval Office is a little old, only 100 years old. It was added on in Roosevelt's time. Teddy Roosevelt, um, but what went on in there? The happiness and the sorrow that has gone on there. Imagine a president having to send men and women off to war, and so it's those decisions there um, that you get the familiar, familiar closeness with these men that have been in, in this. But when they get out of office, it's a lot more fun, and that's when really the relationship starts. So, lessons learned. What have you? What are some of the things you've learned from these fabulous men that you had the opportunity to serve, to protect, and to become, in a way, parts of their part of their families? Well, I think men and women, because you know, you got to remember we have the first ladies too. Even when they get out of office, we we protect them, um, and you know the the institution of what they did. You got to have these wonderful women, and one day it'll be a wonderful man because we will have a woman president um, that has. They weren't elected. But now they're thrown into a job to represent the country as a, you know, mother figure. And one of them I'll say is I spent the last couple of years of uh, Lady Bird Johnson's life with her mm-hmm. um, as the head of her detail. And, you know, we were there to protect her, but in many ways she protected us. And uh, in, a, in a way that, you know, we were like her children. And uh, when she passed away, it was a very, very hard thing for a lot of my, my people on, on my detail and for the Secret Service, um, you know, uh, not to get into intrinsic details, but we were there um, to take care of her from when the time she passed away until she was buried. And that was one of the things I told the family. I said, look, you know, we're here to take care of her, and we will, and we did. I believe you said at one point that you were there even at the funeral and actually closed the coffin. I did, yeah. Uh, that goes beyond just a a family member just a relationship mm-hmm. i hear love in your voice i hear respect i hear i hear emotion there that's huge it was like burying my grandmother all over again and you know you have to represent the country on that and it was just a wonderful outpouring in austin if you want to go online you can see it still on youtube is, is mrs johnson's funeral as well as others and uh, the people holding the signs up and the family was fantastic they treated us like family um, and, you know, you don't see that as much anymore. I will say the Johnson family and Mrs. Johnson and her two daughters and her grandson and, and granddaughters, um, who I speak till to this day, really have a respect of all for this country. Lucy and Linda uh, were just fantastic to us as well as her mother. And uh, so that's the type of behind the scenes that, you know, we'll talk in more segments that we can get into sometimes is um, what I've seen with these people. One lesson learned. Integrity. Wow. Either you have it or you don't. And I will tell you, George Bush, 41, 
is a man of immense integrity. Why? He just lived it. He has a saying, and you know uh, that he used to say, "Don't be a braggadocious." And we'll get into that in another time, but don't be a braggadocious. And so only in America, don't be a braggadocious today, but what is good about America? You can talk about it, live it, and love it. God bless you. God bless America. And we'll see you soon.